0: It's a privilege to be here with you tonight. Uh, I've been looking, Brother Kendall and I have been talking for probably about a year, so it felt like this day would, uh, would never come. It's exciting to see another like-minded church get planted um, almost in the same timetable as us, but just a few years ahead. Um, that said, I, I just spent about four years preaching through Matthew's gospel with a little church in South Georgia uh, that just recently sent me out to plant church in Ashley, Illinois, we've been talking about. Um, It's about two hours south of here. It's a town that doesn't have a single church in its city limits, but I'll I'll talk more about that later. Um, All that to say, a couple Sundays ago, I preached my last sermon there as they prepared to lay hands on me and, and send me many, many hours north. And my text, of course, was the conclusion of Matthew. We just, we finished up preaching through that gospel together. And we went to the, the end of Matthew chapter 28, and basically that text served as the culmination of all of our time in Matthew. And given that that text is still fresh on my mind and that it comes as the culmination of several years of preaching through Matthew's gospel, and also given that part of my purpose for being here and spending this Sunday with you is, is to share with you my, my burden uh, that, that you all share uh, for planting healthy, gospel-centered, confessional churches that will stand the test of time, it makes sense for us to spend our time in that same text tonight as well as we expound on Jesus' great commission. So I'm going to try to weave into the application of this, the purpose for our work in Ashley. um, But ultimately, if you would, as we prepare to read from our text together, it's going to be Matthew chapter 28. If you will, please rise for the reading of the word, Matthew chapter 28, I'll be in verses 16 to 20. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Hear the word of our Lord. So the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, "All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit." teaching them to observe everything i have commanded you and remember i am with you always to the end of the age. It's the word of god for the people of god. Let's go to him in a quick word of prayer and we'll ask for the spirit's illumination on this text. Bless the lord who called all who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us so to hear them. Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Our text this morning, you can notice this if you look at it, breaks down into really kind of three tidy points, and um, I, if I would have passed out an outline, you would have seen that I even alliterated them, which is very uncharacteristic of me, but the, they, they, they're quite tidy. Uh, you're going to see in this text, first, Jesus's lofty claim, then secondly, we'll see Jesus's last command, and then thirdly, Jesus's loving comfort. So the lofty claim, and then his last command, and then his loving comforts. Now remember, our text this evening comes as the culmination of like four years worth of biblical exposition through the Gospel of Matthew. And while it's impossible for me to recreate four years worth of weight that we, we brought to this text whenever we shared this at Turkey Branch, I can't recreate that weight for you tonight, at the very least we need to remember that Jesus' final words here are not divorced from his resurrection earlier in the chapter. If it were not for his resurrection, right? If Jesus had not resurrected from the dead, these final words would have no bearing on us. Everything that has come before in this gospel is driving these three points. His lofty claim, his last command, and his loving comfort. I mean, without that backdrop these words would be no more meaningful than if I stood up here and said all authority has been given to me Joel therefore in the coming years of your church do this because I have commanded you and you would rightly say who died and made you king (laughs) who is this guy right you're not even our pastor right and you're, you're nobody and you'd be right I would be I would be out of line talking like that. So whenever Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, and then he proceeds to give us commands, as a general gives commands to his troops, right? Not suggestions, commands, then that authority must derive from somewhere. So the first thing we're going to see this morning or this evening is that Jesus receives this authority from God as God. So, our first point is Jesus' lofty claim. In verse 18, we see it. It says, Jesus came near and said to his disciples, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Just as a colonel or a lieutenant must receive his authority from someone, so too the incarnate Jesus speaks with an authority that he has received from God as God. As Kendall set us up for this morning, he teed us up perfectly for this text. We see that Jesus is one with the Father, and there is, since there's no one higher than God, Jesus receives his authority from God as God. We read this text this morning. It says, John, John chapter 1, verses 1-4 to four says, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God." He, that is the Son, was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. Colossians 1 continues this thought. He, the Son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. So, whenever Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he means, Has been given to me by my Father. Jesus says in Matthew 11:27, "All things have been entrusted to me by my Father." And in John 3:35, "The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand." In John 13:3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, knelt down and washed the apostles' feet. The Son is, together with the Father and the Spirit, the creator and sustainer of the universe. At the word of the Father, right, all things were created through the Son and for the Son. And so the Son, having all authority, brought everything you see into being from nothing. Ex nihilo. Through Him all things were made. Apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. We think about this, and what that implies is that the Son did not become authoritative at the incarnation. The Son did not become authoritative at the resurrection, because the Father had already given all things into his hand. Jesus even said of his own life, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from whom? My Father. So if that is the case, then what is the point of the resurrection? Now I believe here is the distinction. You see, but before the incarnation, God the Son existed as the eternal Word. Right, the, the logos of the Father. But Jesus, as the God-man, did not yet exist. Before the incarnation, Right, God the Son existed as the second person of the Trinity with all authority. He was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's beautiful Trinitarian language. But the God-man, right, the, the hypostatic union of God and man in the person of Jesus Christ did not yet exist. He was still the one whom all creation was created through and for, and he exercised complete authority over it as God. It's just that before the incarnation, he hadn't painted himself into his own painting yet. He hadn't condescended to take on the very flesh he had created yet. He had not died for sinners yet. He had not rose victorious over sin and death yet. God the Son shared all authority with the Father, but the God-man, Jesus, was not born until that first Christmas morning when after being conceived of the Holy Spirit, He was born of a virgin in a lowly manger. Then once he had completed his great work of redemption, triumphing over sin and death and raising on the third day, God exalted him as the God-man, the incarnate Redeemer, the risen one to his right hand. So now, as never before, the mission of the church has in a sense been placed into the hands of a man. Jesus of Nazareth, son of Mary, Son of God, fully God, fully man. Ephesians 1, as we just read from this text, verses 20 to 21 says, God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And Colossians 1 continues He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He might come to have first place in everything. And Philippians 2 9 to 11 For this reason, God highly exalted Him and gave Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, which is just another way of stating the the, the lofty claim of the Great Commission when he says all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. Not that he didn't already have all authority, but that this authority has now been embodied in the victorious God-man, Jesus Christ, who triumphed over sin and death. That is why the resurrection was absolutely essential to Jesus' claim here. Because his claim hinges on the legitimacy of the resurrection. As I've often heard it said, if they can ever, and think about this, right? Reflect on this. If they can ever find the bones of that first century carpenter, Christianity is dead. If they can ever find the bones of that first century carpenter, Christianity is dead. Think about it. Jesus would have been a false prophet. Not just a good teacher, right? Because good teachers don't lie and say that they're God. And they certainly aren't people that we should listen to. But if the resurrection did happen, if Jesus really did raise from the dead by his own power, and God really has exalted him and given him the name that is above every name and has seated him high at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, if that is true, then we had better pay attention to what he says here. Because if he did resurrect, then this is God, the one from whom all things flow, and he is incarnate in human resurrected flesh. There is a reason that the soldiers were bribed to lie and say the disciples had stolen the body. Remember that earlier in chapter 28? The soldiers were bribed to lie and say the disciples had stolen the body. It's because the chief priests knew what was at stake here. And they would rather perpetuate a lie than bow a knee to the fact that the tomb was empty. Because that empty tomb validates all of Jesus' claims to authority. That empty tomb validates all of Jesus' claims to deity. Everything he says is yes and amen if that tomb is empty. The empty tomb validated his authority, and the chief priests knew it, so they lied. I mean, look how lofty his claim to all authority is, if it's true. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, both in heaven and on earth. Think about that. All authority in heaven and on earth. That means Jesus has authority over Satan. Satan. And all demons, over the angels, good and evil, over natural objects and laws and forces, everything in the night sky, over the weather system, all the rain that we've been having, the wind, lightning, thunder, hurricanes, over all their effects, over everything that you see from the molecular level to the macro. Over all plants, over animals, over all parts and functions of our human bodies, every beat of your hearts, every nation, every government, every president, every king, every emperor, over entertainment, and amusement and leisure and media over education and research and science and discovery, over crime and violence and families and neighborhoods, over every local church, and over every soul in every moment of every life that has ever lived or will ever be lived. And by the way, that includes your salvation, so rest in that. Jesus says, All. Authority is mine in heaven and on earth, which means Christ is Lord. He says, all authority has been given to me, right? That's not Satan, that's not demons, not this world. Jesus has authority over all things, presently and actively. He says, not some authority is mine, not most authority is mine, not some authority later, 2,000 years from now will be mine. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, full stop, Jesus is Lord. There is not one thing that occurs in this universe apart from Jesus' sovereign authority. This is a lofty claim. As that great hymn writer Abraham Kuyper wrote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Think about that. <clears throat> there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, mine. What a, what a great confidence this is. Whenever Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, we can recognize that this promise is being spoken by one who has authority over heaven and hell. That's a promise we can trust. That's a promise we can take comfort in, that Jesus will see that through because he has the authority and the power to do so. Brothers and sisters, there is not a molecule in heaven or on earth over which Jesus does not have all authority, power, and right to do with as he pleases. As the psalmist says, our God is in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases. The scope and the magnet, that's what it means to be God, right? The scope and the magnitude of the authority of Jesus is infinite because Jesus is one with the Father and the Father has given Him all authority, not because the Father can give up being God, but because Jesus is God. And when deity shares infinite authority within deity, He neither loses nor gains anything because He is all one with Himself. And as the Son... As God the Son took upon flesh to be born of a virgin, the God-man, Jesus, was born. And this God-man who came from God went back to God after defeating sin and death. And so he, as God and yet man, can say, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I hope you feel the weight of that claim. What a promise. What a claim. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth because our Lord Jesus is God. This is the Jesus whom we worship. Remember that as we sing our hymns to Him and we pray to Him and we share His gospel. And it is with this absolute authority He speaks to us and says in the next couple of verses. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. Which brings us to our second point, Jesus' last command. His last command. Jesus' last command is built upon his lofty claim. Since all authority belongs to Christ, he can command as a five-star general, gives marching orders to his troops, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And there are actually, I think, two parts to this point. Uh, First, what this command is, simply what this command is, and then secondly, how we fulfill this command. So let's look first to what it is. What it is. Jesus has authority to be king and Lord and Savior everywhere to everyone. This is the reason he commands us to make disciples of all the peoples of the world. Because the authority and supremacy of Jesus over every other nation and people is the basis of world missions. Piper says it like this, anywhere we see Jesus not getting the worship and adulation he deserves by virtue of who he is, right, supreme Lord of the universe, then there should exist a mission among that people group. Or stated another way, missions exist where worship doesn't. That's why Jesus gave us this last command. Missions should exist among people who are in rebellion of the authority of Christ and his reign. Jesus said, all authority is mine. If you see a people group that's not in submission to that authority, then missions should exist. Make disciples among them. Bring them under subjection to my authority in order that they would bend a knee to him. Because remember, as we saw back in Philippians, I read through that passage real quick, the goal is that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the goal here. That's the view. Early in in Bible college, I was assigned a book, it's called The Supremacy of God in Missions. It's, It's by Piper, I just quoted it a minute ago, and that really revolutionized the way that I viewed sharing the gospel and missions. In that book, Piper makes the case that missions exist where worship doesn't in order that worship would, as I just shared that quote with you. And he pointed out that the primary motivator for us sharing the gospel isn't because people all around us are dying and going to hell, though that is certainly a motivation. He says not the primary motivation. The primary motivation is that God isn't being worshipped by those people. Now that's not to say that, again, we shouldn't have a burden for the lost. I think we absolutely should. It, it, It should grieve us that people every day, perhaps even people that we love dearly, If they die apart from Christ, having repented of their sins and trusted in Him, will go away to eternal condemnation because they live their lives in rebellion of God. It should alarm us, it should astound us, it should motivate us, probably way more than it does. I think we're a bit desensitized to that. However, what should motivate us even more is that God is not being worshipped by them, that they are rejecting his authority. Consider it. If, If God is the most supreme being in the universe, then he deserves, right, by virtue of who he is, being the most supreme being in the universe, our worship and adulation. If we don't see God getting the glory he deserves simply by virtue of who he is, then we lament. But if I... Joel were to die tonight and to go to hell, then I would be getting what, what Joel deserves. Right? I would be getting the just, my just dessert, in a sense. Because I have rebelled against God. I have not followed his statutes like I ought. Right? I, I, there are many times in my life I have transgressed God's law. I'm a sinner. And as such, I I know I am fully conscious of the fact that what Joel deserves, apart from the work of Christ in my life, is hell. As we talk about planting a church in Ashley, I'm fully aware of the fact that the citizens of Ashley deserve hell. Apart from the work of Christ in your life, you deserve hell. Because we have all fallen short of the glory of God and therefore deserve hell, right? So it's not just about that. Hell is justice. Hell is not injustice. It's the justice of God. But salvation, that's mercy. That's mercy. Any of us who get to heaven do so only by mercy only by the completed work of Christ. So this command exists because Jesus longs to see a people get brought into grace and mercy and placed under His authority as a good sovereign king so that He might receive their praises for their undeserved salvation as their Savior from that and their Lord. I'll tell you a quick story of two missionaries who illustrate this. In the 1600s, there were two English brothers who came from prominent families, and yet they sold themselves into slavery. You think, well, why would would you do that if you came from a prominent family? We see, there was a, a British colony on a remote island, and on this island was a huge plantation. But the plantation owner was an atheist, and as such, he prohibited his slaves from having access to the gospel. They'd never heard it because they couldn't have access to it. So these brothers sold themselves into slavery. They had a plan that they could wind up on this plantation as this man's slaves, just so they could witness to his other slaves and share the gospel with them. The family of these two brothers, knowing that their lives, because if they they knew, if, if they found out their intentions, that would be it for them. So the family of these two brothers, knowing that their lives were at stake, begged them not to do it. And so when they would say, why would you do this? And when asked what their motivation was, they shared, they didn't say, well, it's because slaves are dying on that plantation and and, and going to hell. They said this, no, they said this. They said, I desire to bring before Jesus the treasure he deserves from this island colony. I love that. I desire, talking about those those slaves, I desire to bring before Jesus the treasure he deserves from this island colony. And he's talking about the worship of those slaves. That's the treasure he was speaking of. Missions exist where worship doesn't, so that worship would to the glory of God the Father. That's the mission of Christ. And his treasure is our worship and submission to that authority. Now that's what this last command is. And I want to spend a moment on how we fulfill that. Because what the command is, I'll spend a moment on how we fulfill it. I think this command, when I read this, I see it as essentially a command to plant churches. So, or stated another way, this last command cannot be fulfilled. And this is so crucially important. This last command cannot be fulfilled apart from the local church. Now what do I mean by that? Well, look at the text. What does it say? Jesus says, What? Go therefore and pass out gospel tracts and ask people to make decisions to accept Jesus into their heart. Is that what it says? No, what's it say? Go therefore and what? Make disciples. Make disciples, not get people to pray some prayer or just make a decision, ask Jesus into their heart, and pass out gospel. They so "No, make disciples." Well, how is this done? Through the church. Well, how do we know it's done through the church? Well, keep reading because the Great Commission is not even just a call to make disciples, but is also a call to what? Baptize them. Baptize them into what? The church. (laughs) The body of Christ. Where they will be discipled in community and taught all that Jesus has commanded us. Be taught the great faith in covenant community. That's the great commission. In Acts and elsewhere throughout the New Testament, it is quite clear that baptism is more than just a profession of faith. It is also a sign and a seal. It is a sign of our unification with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, and a seal in that when we are, we are baptized into his body, taking on membership in a local church to be kept in the faith with accountability and boundaries, which means that there are those who are in and those who are out. Thus, the biblical way to increase the number of Christians in a town is to increase the number of churches. So the Great Commission, if we're working to fulfill it biblically, is essentially a command to plant churches, especially among people who have none. This is how we bring people into worship of Christ and under the authority of Christ. It's through the local church. Whereas most evangelism today simply aims to get people to make a decision for Christ, reality will show. And if any of you have ever shared the gospel with a loved one or somebody else, you will see quickly that many of these decisions quickly disappear, don't they? And they never result in change lives. And that's because many decisions are not actually conversions. Many decisions are not actually conversions, but just this emotional stirring that fades whenever the excitement is gone. Right? You come down off that church camp high, crash. Only a person, only a person who is being evangelized in the context of ongoing community where there is clear accountability can be sure of finally coming home into vital saving faith. And that is why I say that the Great Commission cannot be fulfilled apart from the local church. Which, by the way, is why I'm planting a church in Ashley, because it is a town that does not currently have a local church or a gospel witness, period. So rather than parachuting in passing out a few gospel tracts, and then heading on back to the warmth of South Georgia, which sounds appealing, especially right now when it's like 10 degrees outside. Rather than doing that, we want to stay and organize a gospel-centered church that will make disciples of Ashley, Illinois, baptize them into a church, and teach them all that Jesus has commanded us. We want to bring them under the authority and lordship of Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. So you've now seen Jesus' lofty claim and his last command, both what it is and how we fulfill it, and now let let us rest in the final, final words of Christ, his loving comfort. This comes in the end of verse 20. It says, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age brings us to our third and final point, Jesus's loving comfort. Earlier, whenever Jesus sent his disciples out to advance this gospel, he warned them. He said, look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. They will hand you over to the local courts and they will flog you in their synagogues. You will even be brought before governors and kings because of me and you will be hated by everyone because of my name. If they called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? That's in Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 to 25. However, he then immediately said in the next verse, in verse 26, do not be afraid of them. Now, how not? How could he say that? That sounds pretty horrendous. Look at his reasoning in verses 29 to 31 Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground. Oh boy, you see his authority here too, don't you? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. But even the hairs of your head have all been counted. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than the sparrows. I was in chapter 10. And we see the same thing in the Great Commission. His command to go, make disciples, baptize, and teach is sandwiched between his claim of all sovereign authority and his loving comfort to be with us always. Those claims and that claim and that comfort sandwich the command to go. Because of his authority, we don't have to be afraid whenever we go. Church, this is our hope in life and in death. Christ is in control and he loves his people with an unconditional covenant love. And so his loving comfort to us as his redeemed is, I will be with you always. Notice three brief things about this loving comfort. Well, it's identification, it's continuation, and it's unconditional nature. By identification, I mean, who is it that gives us this loving comfort? Who? I am with you. It is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Oh, beloved, plead with God. Plead with God to open your eyes to what this means for you. That this Jesus, with all authority over every enemy, every disease, and every calamity, promises to be with his children. Oh, the, the preciousness of the covenant bought for us with the blood of Christ. He tells Jeremiah, I will be their God and they will be my people. I will make a permanent covenant with them. I will never turn away from doing good to them. And in Romans, he says, I will help you. Or sorry, in Romans, he says, I will work everything together for their good. And then to Isaiah, he says, I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. With this loving comfort, we can face the worst threats and say with the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4, 16-17, No one stood by me, but everyone deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Who is it that speaks this to us? Who does this for us? The one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. So that's the identification. But then there's continuation in this loving comfort. Not just the identity, who is with us promising this, but how long? I am with you always to the end of the age. Now in the Greek, this literally says all the days. I am with you all the days, continually, without break, the all-powerful, all-ruling Christ does not take breaks from his promise of always being with his children. Hebrews 13:5 reads: Be satisfied with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am with you always to the end of the age. Not only is his authority and presence continual and without break, but thirdly, it is also without condition. It is unconditional. I am with you always. No conditions placed on that. Why? Because the work on the cross wasn't a conditional work. As long as the world lasts, Jesus will be with us. Through suffering and sickness, Jesus will be with us. Through death and mourning and loss, Jesus will be with us. Through persecution and lostness and rebellion, Jesus will be with us as culture around us degrades. Jesus will be with us, comforting us and loving us and presenting us blameless before the Father. And if He is for us, then who can be against us? As Paul asks, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? And the answer is, no one. And even when the world and all that is in it shall pass away at the end of the age, then we shall be with him. And until then, Jesus is with us. This is the loving comfort. The one who has all authority in heaven and on earth who has put all of his enemies under his feet and died for us and rose on the third day triumphant over sin and death and Satan, comforts us by promising that he will be with us continually to bring us safely to everlasting joy. Are you in awe of him yet, church? Oh, I pray that these words tonight would be a sweet, sweet comfort to your soul. As I prepare to organize a church in a town with no gospel presence, and you, a young church plant yourself, I believe you particularized three years ago as a local congregation, so you're not even five years old yet. As you grow to maturity, we both need to hear this. Jesus will be with us. He, the one whom all authority has been given to in heaven and on earth, will be with us. He, the one who calls us to the work before us, will be with us continually and until the end of the age. That is what makes the Great Commission so great. And so the culmination of all of our time in Matthew leads us to this conclusion. Jesus is our risen, eternal King, fully God, fully man. And as such, we have His lofty claim. All authority has been given to me. His last command, go and make disciples among all the peoples of the world. And His loving comfort, I am with you always to the end of the age. So as we prepare to respond in song in just a moment, hear me, I want to end with this. If you have not been born again, repenting of your sins and placing your faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross to be a sufficient satisfaction for your sins, if you have not done that, then you are still on the other side of this great commission. If that's the case, these promises do not apply to you because you are still rebelling against the authority of the Son. You are in rebellion. And unless you repent and turn to Christ, you will die eternally condemned in your sins. I beg of you this evening, if that is you, yield to Christ submit to his authority. Jesus is king. Rather you bend a knee to him or not. As that passage we read from earlier, Philippians 2 says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Folks, if you won't bend a knee to his authority in your life, Rest assured, your knee will be broken on the final day of judgment because on that day, every knee will bow, including yours, one way or another. If you won't bend it, it'll be broken. So come to Him today while salvation is free. Our good and gracious King who offers to us rebels a salvation that we do not deserve. Then He promises to be with us Keep us and preserve us to the very end of the age. And lastly, to those, to those who are already bowing a knee to Christ as Lord, then I hope you know what this means. It means you have a command, not a suggestion, a command to make disciples. Bring others into the church. And teach them to obey all that Jesus has commanded us. And remember, as we fulfill this task, Jesus will be with us always to the end of the age, and then we shall be with him. Let's close in prayer. Oh, gracious Father, I pray for this church that as they proclaim your gospel with conviction that You would open the ears of those around them to hear and respond. Father, You would build them up to be a light in this community. And Father, that they would stay in love with Your ordinary means of grace. For Father, salvation cannot be manipulated. No production, no entertainment can replace what Your Spirit does through your word and the preaching of the gospel. I pray, Father, that you would just soften the hearts of those to that word as they work to bring people in subjection to your authority. And I pray that your name would be hallowed, that it would be revered, and our good, gracious Father, you would be worshipped in spirit and in truth here in this community in and through your local church. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus, for your glory. Amen.